We're going to look at Proverbs 5, but we'll be in a lot of passages tonight. Um, And I'll say this, uh, my goal is to let Scripture speak, um, and to let it speak clearly. Uh, There's probably no other figure in biblical history that experienced kind of the problems of sexuality than Solomon, who wrote Proverbs. Um, it, it ripped his family apart, both his father's sin and his own sin, so he understands it. But um, a lot of times we want to shy away from Scripture and from some, uh, shy away from some of the strong things it says about things that we find distasteful, distasteful or politically incorrect. I hope not to do that. I think it was Spurgeon that said we don't need to defend Scripture. We just need to let it out of, the, out of a cage like a lion. Um, so I want Scripture to speak for itself tonight. Let me say this also. If you find yourself shamed, there's cleansing to be had in the gospel. If you find yourself offended because it calls you out on some things, then I ask you to consider the path of wisdom. One of the first things we asked was, uh, or pointed out is that wisdom means that you're a person who sits under authority, not, not a person who assumes they are an authority. And if you're confused and, and maybe embarrassed, ask questions. Ask me, ask Elizabeth, ask Katie. You won't embarrass us. Um, But here's what we can't do tonight. We can't deal with all the issues with regard to sexuality. We could spend weeks on that and not exhaust everything Scripture has to say, not exhaust all the issues that are simply represented in this room. So I'm not going to be able to get to everything, and I hope that you'd be willing, especially if something sticks in your mind and in your heart, um, especially if the the Spirit's at work, that you would come and talk to Elizabeth and I or to Katie. Uh, We are open and really and truly you won't embarrass us and the odds of you shocking us are very 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 slim um so don't worry about that and lastly before i read it i'll say this i'm sexually broken i need jesus to heal me of my sexual sin and i need the holy spirit to fight in me and to fight against me and to fight with me to preserve me from sexual sin every day and so i'm speaking to you from that position with that in mind let's read from proverbs proverbs 5 3 through 20 For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan and your flesh and body are consumed and you say, How I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation." But drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly he's led astray. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the wood of God stands forever. Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you for your word, and I thank you that you address directly um, and also often the notion of sexuality. And as we consider it, I pray that we would come with sober and mature minds and hearts, dear Lord, but also with humble minds and hearts, and that your spirit would work in our hearts, dear God. This is an area in which we're confused. This is an area in which there's great struggle. This is an area in which there's battle within the culture and within our hearts, dear Lord. And we need your spirit and your word to be clear and powerful in our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, when the issue of sex comes up, there's obviously like a myriad of emotions and feelings and thoughts that cross our minds. And so <clears throat> some of y'all here, RUF is on sexuality tonight. And, um, and, and you're not excited. Uh, maybe there might, not, there might even be people who aren't here because they know that. You're not excited because you're aware of the Bible's sexual ethic that it calls for chastity, and yet you feel powerless to pursue purity, and maybe you've given up the fight, and maybe you're kind of making peace with, with, a, with kind of the shame and the guilt that you feel, and you just, you just want to stop feeling the guilt because you've lost any sense of kind of fight with it, and so you don't want to talk about it. You're not excited. Maybe you're not excited because you're tired of conservative Christians being closed-minded about sex, and you'd prefer to kind of um, inform it the way you want to inform it. Maybe you're terrified because you've been the victim of sexual violence, and even though there's a tiny part of you that longs for sexual intimacy one day, there's a much larger part of you that's deeply afraid of it because it's become associated with something so evil. Um, Some of y'all are going to think that everyone is going to know that I'm talking about you. I am, just so you know. It's a joke. Um, (laughs) No, but actually I really am. Um, Kidding. (laughs) But for most of us, it's kind of a mixture of excitement and terror at the same time because it is awesome. Um, and, uh, and, and there's also this mixture of shame on some level because the sexual immorality has been a part of everybody's life in here. And um, there's a level of confu- confusion. And so what are we supposed to do with something that's so just kind of pervasive and so attached to just who we are, the notion of sexuality? And Christians have kind of approached it two different ways, neither of which have been very helpful. And the first one is the avoid all things sexual to the point that simply bringing up the issue of sex almost makes you feel ashamed. Like if you're in a public setting and that's all of a sudden the subject of talk, you feel like all of a sudden you're dirty. Um, we're embarrassed to even maybe of, even to have the desire for it. You're ashamed to have the desire for it. You feel dirty if you have the desire for it. And the church has also oftentimes kind of perpetuated this kind of avoid all things sexual mentality and maybe if it hasn't done it explicitly by saying all sex is bad it's done it implicitly because the church has never addressed sexuality in a positive light has never rejoiced in it and this is the story of one couple uh, who are not uncommon Charlie and Susan they had a picture perfect wedding night they should have had a picture perfect wedding night They've both grown up strong Christian families, both determined as high schoolers save sex for marriage they met their senior in college, they were engaged eight months later They refrained from having sex before they were married. But on their wedding night, Susan's words were that it was a disaster. Charlie was eager, and she simply didn't want to have sex. And she said this afterwards, I did have sex because that's what you do, but she wasn't happy about it. 
nor did she want to have sex much after their fir- during their first three years of marriage until they started meeting with a counselor in their church. And she said, I knew there would be a learning curve with sex, but I thought it meant learning the mechanics. What I really had to learn, actually, was that sex is okay, that it's okay to desire my husband. It is not uncommon, because of the way the church is handling sex, that men and women get into marriage and feel guilty when they have sex inside of marriage, because the church has handled it so poorly and painted it in such a negative light. And on the other hand, there are branches of the church, and their approach to sexuality is they permit all things sexual. They look at Scripture and say, well, some of the sexual ethics from Scripture, they're dated, it's cultural, it's not relevant today because people are really different now. They're just parts of Scripture that you kind of have to disregard. And what you're doing when you're doing that is you're not dealing with God anymore because what you've said is, if God confronts me anywhere, I'm taking that part out. Which means what you're doing is you're crafting a God that is simply a yes man for your personality. If God's not allowed to confront you, your God's not allowed to confront you, he's not a God in any sense. He's simply your own imaginary image of yourself that lets you do what you want. And so whenever the church just says, well, whatever is permissible, when the church just says, like, these texts, they can't be understood or used, they're culturally bound, what the church is saying is, when God confronts us, we're disregarding him. We're only going to let him speak to us on our terms. So what we hope to do is draw a picture of sexuality tonight um, that restores it. And we want to do three things. We want to reestablish the goodness of it, consider the purpose of it, and then what it looks like to redeem it. And the first thing, Proverbs 5, 18 and 19, the first point is simply this. Sex is awesome, and God thinks sex is awesome. That's really the first point. 5, 18, and 19. That's right when Wilma Taxis walks in. Wasn't that a great line to walk in on? (laughs) Now he feels really uncomfortable. Um, Great, I hope he comes back. Um, Verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Do you hear the language of Scripture? And this isn't the only place. It's all over the place. Being filled, the notion of filled is to be satisfied. God wants you to be sexually satisfied for your desire to, be, uh, to have sex to be met fully. And not just fully one time, at all times. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Intoxication, the word there is actually the word for being swept away. The word literally means that you're carried away. He wants you to be carried away with sexual bliss. That's what God wants for you. Does that sound like a God who's stodgy about sex? I had a friend who was talking to, going to go talk to the father of the girl he was dating uh, about getting married. I'm going to have that big, intense talk. And we'll call that friend, my brother-in-law, and we'll call that father my dad, right? We're going to hide identities. Um, So this future father-in-law, unnamed future father-in-law, is meeting with this unnamed future brother-in-law. And he says, through the course of their meeting, he says, well, let me ask something, Scott. Do you want to sleep with my daughter? And Scott's like, hey. He's this, like, hulking 300-pound rugby all-star, uh, like, 
first team all state offensive lineman everything this huge guy and he's just like reduced to just like shaking <laughs> across from my dad and so dad kind of let him feel uncomfortable for a while because that's a dad's responsibility um especially for a future brother-in-law and then finally he said because you better that's a good father And I've mentioned it before, but I'm just going to reinforce it briefly tonight. When you pick up the Bible and read it from beginning to end, God creates the world, and then the pinnacle of His his creation is to create man in His image, His little self-portraits to inhabit the earth. And the first words in Genesis 1.28 that God says to mankind are this, first words ever. They're not, don't worship other gods. They're not, don't steal. They're not, don't cuss. They're not, don't watch our movies. Don't dip or don't drink. None of those... (laughs) are God's first words. His first words are be fruitful, which is a slightly more tasteful way to say have a ton of sex so you can have a ton of kids. God's first words are an exhortation to have a lot of sex. 1 Corinthians 7, 5, Paul is dealing with sexual immorality within the church, and he makes an interesting point in 7, 5. He speaks to husbands and wives, and he says this, don't deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay, Paul's saying keep having sex, and the only reason you should ever stop is if y'all both agree, not just one of you, you both agree that it's going to be temporary and you're going to spend that time to pray a lot. Paul says that's when you should stop having sex. If y'all both agree it's going to be temporary and you're going to use that time to pray. We actually have... There's a document we, you know, people use the word Puritan to refrain to uh, to refer to people that are that are cold and unfeeling and you know have this kind of lost, lofty, stodgy view of sex. We actually have documents, church documents in a Puritan church where the church disciplined a man for not having enough sex with his wife. So I'm taking a Puritan view of sex. Um, y'all, sex is awesome. It is great. God loves it when you enjoy it and when you enjoy it a lot. You are designed to enjoy it a lot. It's one of the few ways in which I'm kind of like semi-obedient to God. Like he and I are on the same page on this one. I love it. It is awesome. I don't read my Bible very much, but in this one area we're on the same page. Here's the real problem, and this really gets to the next point. But this is the transition. This is the problem with sexuality. Here's what we think it is. We think it's too controlling and that we like it too much and we're too obsessed with it. And that is not the problem. The problem is the exact opposite. It's actually that we don't like sex enough. It's actually that we don't like it enough. Because what do you do with the things that you care little about? You don't care for them. You don't worry about them. They can be anywhere. You can just be loose with them. What do you do with the things that you care about and value and enjoy a ton. You go to great lengths to protect, enjoy, to protect them and to enjoy them well. Our problem is actually not that we're obsessed with sex. Our problem is actually we don't love it too much. Or, sorry, our problem is not, we, not that we love it um, too much. Our problem is that we love it too little. He wants you to be filled. He wants you to be satisfied. He wants you to be swept away. And to do so, we've got to see it for what it is. We've got to recover the purpose of sex. And the purpose is this. This is the second point. The purpose is that it is a covenant sign. It's actually a physical act of unity 
that doesn't just signify, it's not just a sign, it actually also nourishes and enriches all the other ways in which you're intended to be united to someone. Sex is a picture, it's actually a physical picture of your emotional and spiritual and social and psychological and legal union that you have with your spouse. Genesis 2.24, this is when God institutes marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, bind himself to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Jesus comments on that very passage in Matthew 19, so that they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Sex is the physical way in which we say to our spouse, I am yours and you are mine, holy, nakedly, unashamedly, always. It's literally you giving yourself away to your spouse. It's saying, my body is yours. Tim Keller makes this point, and you'll, Lord willing, you'll get this. Eventually, the thing that's actually sexually arousing marriage is to feel understood, is to feel unity in all the other areas in which you are, union, in, which you are in union. And he says this, and then, after a while, sexy underwear doesn't matter very much. What's more arousing is actually the emotional and the, and the physical and the psychological and the social and all in the mental and the spiritual ways in which you are bound to each other inside of covenant. It's the physical union that blesses and nourishes and affirms and confirms all the other ways in which you're united. And so that's why the Bible has the sexual ethic that it does. That's why God has the sexual ethic that it does, which is essentially this. Your sexuality in its entirety is exclusively for your spouse. C.S. Lewis says it this way, either complete faithfulness with your spouse or total abstinence. Because sex is supposed to be the sacrament of marriage. That's really kind of what it is. It's the way in which our bodies signify and enjoy the unity that we have with our spouse. C.S. Lewis says this, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, namely sexual, from all the other kinds of union which are intended to go along with it and make up total union. G.K. Chesterton says this, They have invented a new phrase that is black and white contradiction in two words, free love. As if a lover had ever been or ever could be free, it is the nature of love to bind itself. Your sexuality is exclusively and totally for your spouse alone. For the purpose of you enjoying it deeply and richly and over a long period of time. And so that it would nourish your family and your relationship with your spouse. And actually even nourish your relationship with Jesus because it is even a picture of Christ's love for the church. Of the intimacy and the vulnerability and even the ecstasy of Christ's love for his people. And so when we choose to engage in it otherwise, things break down. And so some of the consequences when we say, well, well, that's the purpose, but we kind of follow the desires of our own heart. A couple of things happen. First of all, sex outside of marriage, expressing your sexuality in any way outside of marriage, it violates the intrinsic purpose of sex. And when you use something for a purpose for which it was not intended, you break it and it breaks you. An example, I've used this before, Magic wands in our house are pure plastic joy. Like, I have four little girls. Tinkerbell is, our, is all the rage right now for us. 
and magic wands are everything. And you know what magic wands are great for? Doing magic. You know what magic wands are horrible for? Bludgeoning sisters. <laughs> it breaks the magic wand, it breaks your sister, and guess who also gets upset? The one who hit their sister. When you use things for what they were not intended to be used, it breaks down everything. Six, Proverbs 6.32, He who commits adultery lacks sense, and he, and he who does it destroys himself. 5.22, The iniquities of the wicked man ensnare him. He is held fast in the cords of his sin. This is the image of the ruin that sin and sexual immorality, it brings us in and ensnares us in ruin. And the reason that sex outside of marriage is so corrosive is because in your physical relationship, what you're saying in your physical relationship is, I am yours exclusively, wholly, nakedly, and permanently. But in every other aspect of your relationship, you're saying, no, I'm not. I will not commit to you. Okay, <clears throat> y'all are going to disagree with me at first, Beth, but just listen. Dating by definition is not commitment. Dating by definition is saying, I like you and I want to be involved romantically with you, but I don't want to be committed to you. Because in every dating relationship, you are perfectly within your rights to no longer date tomorrow. That's the whole agreement in dating. That's why you're dating instead of married, because you actually want to have the right, your legal right, to leave tomorrow. That's why you're dating and not married. When sexuality comes in, what we're doing is we're acting married and... and with our, with our bodies and with our words and with our definition of the relationship by calling it a dating relationship or whatever it is, hooking up, we're saying, but I'm actually not committed to you. I'm not, I will not covenant with you. Only some of my time will be yours. Only some of my affection. And if somebody comes along that's more attractive and funnier, if I grow tired of you or weary with you, then I am in my rights to no longer be yours. Sex outside of marriage, it, it violates the intrinsic meaning of sex. Sex outside of marriage is actually a lie. It's saying one thing with your body and then with your behavior, doing something totally different, and that wreaks havoc when you do something and use it for a purpose for which it was not intended. It just breaks down everybody. So instead of all of a sudden picture, uh, of sex being a picture of sweet self-giving, it actually becomes a commodity that we trade in. And we're connecting all over the place and we never experience unity. We're just kind of hoping for it. And that's why we run after it. And we wince at the end of our sexual encounters. And we never find the unity and the solace and the comfort that we wanted. And we find ourselves essentially, at, after a while, hooked on a drug that we're trying to silence our loneliness with. And all it actually does is induce the loneliness. And in a sick, twisted way, we keep running back and we keep running further, continuing to hope that we won't be lonely, but we just find ourselves more lonely on the other end. It wears us down. It breaks us down. God places sex within marriage not to stifle our sexuality, but to enjoy it, to protect it, so that you will have a rich and awesome and, and sexual relationship, so that it complements and nourishes all the other ways in which you are bound to your partner. It breaks everything down, and also does this. It dehumanizes you as a person. We become a person detached from ourselves because what happens is we'll slowly you'll just slowly numb your sense of feeling your first sexual encounters are very powerful and you will feel connected and alive and you will feel what it feels like actually to be married on some level you'll feel like this person is yours and you're theirs and it's always and forever 
and we say these words, right? But you won't be. You won't be theirs, and they won't be yours always and forever. And so you'll get used to the feeling of connecting and then ripping apart. And what that actually does is it damages our ability to connect, to relate, and it increases superficial and immature and exploitative relational patterns. What happens when you have Velcro and you stick it together and rip it apart over and over and over again? Over time, you diminish its ability to stick. And this actually applies not just to relating to one another, but also to pornography and to masturbation. And this is, these are the words from actually a noted feminist, Naomi Wolf. <clears throat> At a benefit the other night, I saw Andrea Dworkin the anti-porn activist most famous in the 80s for her conviction that opening the floodgates of pornography would lead men to see real women in sexually debased ways. If we did not limit pornography, she argued, before internet technology made that prospect a technical impossibility, most men would come to objectify women as they objectified porn stars and treat them accordingly. In a kind of domino theory, she predicted rape and other kinds of sexual mayhem would surely follow. So was she right or wrong? She was right about the warning, and she was actually wrong about the outcome. As she foretold, pornography did breach the dike that separated a marginal adult private pursuit from mainstream public arena. It did become mainstream. And the whole world post-internet did become what she calls pornographized. I don't know how you pronounce that word. Young men and women are indeed being taught what sex is, how it looks, what its etiquette and expectations are, but pornographic training... And this is having a huge effect on how they interact, but the effect is not making men into raving beasts. On the contrary, the onslaught of porn is responsible for deadening male libido in relation to real women and leading men to see fewer and fewer women as porn-worthy. Far from having to fend off porn-crazed young men, young women are worrying that as mere flesh and blood, they can scarcely get, let alone hold, the attention of men. I was listening to the Avid Brothers the other day, and they had this song, The Tin Man, and it's, it's singing about losing the feeling of feeling. I used to fill the sky around with happiness and joy. I had news to give the wind and keep my sails and heart employed. I felt people move around me. I even felt loneliness and shame. Back then, every day was different. Now each moment is the same. I miss it. I miss it. Oh, I miss the feeling of feeling. It's a song about how they've lost even the ability to feel. Sex wrongly used eventually just saps us of life and feeling. 5.11, at the end of your life, you groan because your flesh and your body are consumed. So what do we do about it? This is not going to be exhaustive. Um, but Proverbs here gives us two practical directions for pursuing chastity. And the first one is this, 5.8, Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. And the point is this. Don't even stand close to temptation. Don't even stand where you can hear it or see it or be tempted. He's saying, keep your way far from her. Don't even go near the door of her house. Because Proverbs recognizes that sexual morality is very appealing. The lips of the forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. And so the solution is not this. This is what the solution is not. Learn how to be somebody who can get really close to sexual temptation and say no. That's not the solution. He gives us 5.8. Stay really, really, really far away. He's not saying learn how to say no 
Learn how to turn it off. That's not what he's saying. He's saying learn how to ne- never get near a place where you have to say no or to turn it off. This is the way my campus minister at Vanderbilt said it when I was a student. He said, learn what situation it is that always gets you into trouble, whether it's in your relationship, whether it's with the Internet, whether it's in your fantasy life. Learn what situation, that once you get in that situation, you could, it always eventually gets you into trouble. And he says, then take ten steps back and live right there. Never get to the place where you can hear the temptation drawing you. But we need more than that. And so Proverbs gives us more than that. We already talked about these verses. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Another aspect of pursuing sexual purity is this. Have lots of awesome sex with your spouse. Here's one piece of advice about sex that I, I think is in accord with Proverbs and all of Scripture. Have sex early and often. You can say that. Your pastor said have sex early and often. And you're thinking, okay, that's so unfair, Right? And I'm going to read something briefly from 1 Corinthians 7. And we're going to talk about it and ask questions about it later. But Paul says this, If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. It's better to marry than to be aflame with passion. This is what Paul's saying. If you're in a relationship and you have no self-control, get married. Okay, sometimes I get the reputation of... Thanks to David Collins in part. I get the reputation... (laughs) of being the guy who just goes around and tells everybody, you need to get married, you need to get married, you need to get married. I hate that reputation. And you're not allowed to walk out of here and say, I'm the guy that says, you need to get married, you need to get married, you need to get married. What reputation I don't mind, and that you can walk out of here saying is, this is the guy who read the Bible and told us where God told us, you need to get married, you need to get married, you need to get married. (laughs) I hate that reputation. I love David Collins. Uh, This is Paul saying, if you're making out a ton, you both love Jesus and you can't stop, get married. If you're making out a ton, you both love Jesus and you can't stop, get married. God tells you that, okay? And when your parents get upset about it, gently and respectfully and over a period of time, it's not going to be a one 30-minute conversation over the phone or texting or something. Be patient. Um, and point them to what God says. Okay? No, no, that doesn't fix everything. And ultimately, in some sense, the application is actually this. Stop hating sex. That's actually the application. Stop hating sex. Love it so much that like everything you value and enjoy deeply, you'll actually fight to do whatever it takes to enjoy it well and thoroughly. And I know that feels incomplete, and I know I'm not giving you all the answers because we want the steps to take to fight the things that are going on in our mind, that's going on in our computer, that's going on uh, in our relationships. And we could spend months on how the gospel really offers healing. And here's what I will say, actually, before before I make a last point. Some of, there are people in this room, a lot, everybody thinks they're the only one that are ensnared in sexual darkness, and it could be a relationship in which you don't know how to turn things back to where you wish they were, and you're living in that pattern that, that everybody struggles with, where you go further, and you feel guilty, and then you endeavor to stop, and you stop for a while, and then you go further, and you feel guilty, and it's just a cycle. 
And maybe, maybe you're ensnared in pornography and it's just sapping life and feeling from you. Maybe you've been a victim of something that is horrible and you don't think anything can heal you and you don't think anyone can understand and you're completely alone in this. These are dark and they are lonely places to be and the gospel does offer healing. But you need to know that God never intended nor gifted you individually with the ability to heal yourself. He set a community around you for the purpose of preaching and counseling the gospel into your life. And if these, if you're alone in this darkness in these areas, please, please, please talk to me, talk to Elizabeth, talk to Katie. You're neither intended nor gifted with the ability to heal yourself. But to make the last point, I want to say this. Everybody in here is sexually broken. And if it's not manifests itself outwardly in certain ways in our life, certainly in our hearts, in our minds, in secret hidden places. Some of us are hiding an addiction that we're fighting on our own. Some of us are hiding pain done to us in the past. Some of us are trying to justify our behavior. Some of us are actually afraid we're never going to be loved, so we don't want to admit that we actually long for union. We're trying to quiet that longing. Instead of working so hard to hide and to hate and to justify and to clean and to pacify yourself... This is the application. Bring your sexuality to the cross. See that Jesus takes and loves and cleans sexually dirty people. See that Jesus longs to labor with you to restore your love for Him and your love for great sex. In Ezekiel, there's an amazing passage, Ezekiel 16. When I read it, you kind of won't believe it's in the Bible. This is God speaking to His people. When I passed you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age of love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. He's describing his relationship with the people, with his people as marriage. I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. You were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect to the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. Now listen to this. But you trusted in your beauty and you played the whore. Because of your renown... And lavish, you lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. You took your beautiful jewels of my gold and silver, for which I had given you, and made yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. So he says at the end of the chapter, he goes on to describe the whoredom of Israel over 50 verses. In graphic terms. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You have despised the oath in breaking the covenant, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am Lord, that you may remember and be confounded. When you get his love for you, it's almost confusing. You'll never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you all that you have done, declares the Lord God. The gospel is where God says, 
Your dirt can't disparage my love for you. Your shame can't push me away. Some of y'all are familiar with, I'm borrowing this straight from Matt Chandler, an illustration he uses. It's the best illustration on how Jesus relates to you in your sexual brokenness. He shares a time when he actually brought a, a woman to a church service. This woman was struggling with sexual immorality. He was just trying to love her well. He said, why don't you come to me to this church service where I go to church? And the preacher got up and said, we're talking about sex tonight. And when he started, he started by holding up a rose, and he said, I want everybody to pass around this rose and smell it. It's beautiful. It's rich. It's sweet. And he passed around. The auditorium was filled with hundreds and hundreds of people. And the rose was passed around while he just went on for 45 minutes telling you everything that could go wrong and everything that's evil about sexuality, about all the diseases that you can get, about all the, the, the destruction you wreak in your life and others. And Matt Chandler just said he was just, it was just infuriating. It was the most heavy-handed sermon ever. And it, while this guy was getting fired up at the end and talking about everything that's wrong with you because of your sexual brokenness, he asked for the rose. He says, who has my rose? Bring my rose up. And by now the rose had been passed around the whole auditorium. Everybody touched it. And this guy brought it up, and it was bent, and it was broken, and petals had fallen off, and it was browned, and it, was, it had wasted away. And he made his point in, and he goes, who would actually want this rose? And Matt Chandler said it was everything in his heart not to stand up and scream. Jesus wants that rose. Jesus wants that rose. You get the picture of his love for his people. You haven't looked at more porn than he can forgive. You haven't. You haven't done too much and you haven't gone too far. You haven't been with too many. It doesn't matter how crazy you think your story is. Read the Old Testament. You haven't run too far in your mind to outlast the grace of God. His love is a love that runs after a prostitute and cleans her. I know you, you want the specific directions of how to stop making out or how to turn off pornography, but you've got to see this. The ability to turn the porn off is not an effort problem. It's a love problem. It's not that you haven't tried hard enough. It's not if that you try harder next time you'll get it. It's actually that you don't love Jesus or sex enough. And the path to loving Jesus, John gives us in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. The power to restore sexuality is in reveling in the grace of Jesus. The power to begin to love sex in such a way as to protect it is to understand Jesus' love for you. It is love that forgives us the penalty of our sin. It's a love that actually heals us from the power of sin in our lives. And it's when we rest in reality that Jesus wants the rose, that a love for him blossoms in response. Let's pray.